it's really nice to um, talk about the kind of revolutionary dimension specifically, because uh, uh, once you think about the story through those lenses, as it were, I think you see it in its sort of proper perspective. And 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 because we don't, because that language is not sort of readily available in the way we talk, even we talk about history. Yeah. Um, it's sometimes difficult to kind of capture that um, uh, that specificity. That's why this kind of conversation is a bit easier in in places like France or even America, where at least there's a revolution that they talk about and and <laughs> and, and, and claim to be claim to be inspired by, even if the reality isn't uh, doesn't quite live up to it. That's really but here, interesting. Yeah. here it's really hard. Uh, to get that across, even because yeah. you know, as as I think, I think it was George who mentioned Cromwell. But you know, you got to really go a long way back right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to talk about revolutions here. Yeah, um, and I think um, I think some people have rebranded it uh, civil war. I think uh, even the term revolution is a little well, bit the war uh, between the three kingdoms. Even I see. Yes. Yeah. Hello and welcome to Alpha Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. My name is Alex Hokili in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Today's episode is not about present history, as is our normal approach to things, but rather 18th century history. Philip Cunliffe and George Hoare spoke to Sudhir Hazari Singh, a historian at Oxford University and the author of a gripping new biography of the great Haitian revolutionary Toussaint Louverture. So I'll hand over to Phil right now. Well, hi, Sadir, and welcome to Alpha Bunga Bunga. Thanks for having me. So we're talking about your book. And before we get into um, get into the meat of it, could you provide us, provide our listeners with a brief overview of Toussaint Louverture's life, who he was and why he is so significant? So Toussaint Louverture was born sometime in the early 1740s on the Breda plantation on the northern plain of the French colony of Saint-Domingue, which was at the time France's richest colony. Uh, his parents were enslaved and forcibly transported uh, across the Atlantic from the kingdom of Alada, which is uh, today the Republic of Benin. And Toussaint spent the first 50 years of his life on this plantation. Um, I call him in the book the first black superhero of modern times because he was a warrior, he was a founding father, he was a philosopher, a, a liberator, and eventually a, a martyr. Um, his biggest claim to fame, as it were, was that he led the 500,000 enslaved people of Saint-Domingue towards emancipation, forcing the French, uh, who were at the time the colonizing power, to recognize their freedom and uh, to grant uh, emancipation to eventually to all slaves in, in all uh, French colonies. Toussaint Louverture then freed his homeland from slave supporting British and Spanish occupying forces, uh, rose to the rank of general in the French Republican army, and uh, by the late 1790s sidelined um, all his uh, domestic and French rivals furthermore establishing political and commercial links with the USA. And I suppose his, his political career um, came to a climax in 1801, when he promulgated a Republican constitution, which appointed him governor for life, and which of slavery forever. And, and this constitution effectively made Saint-Domingue an autonomous entity within the French colonial empire. Now, unfortunately, this displeased Napoleon, who sent an invading army to reoccupy and re-enslave Saint-Domingue, and the French captured Toussaint in 1802 and jailed him in France, where he died a year later. However, the French expedition was doomed, and Toussaint's lieutenants fought the invaders off the island and declared their independence in 1804. And that is how uh, the state of Haiti was born, the world's first black independent post-colonial state. Now, clearly, um, the book would have been conceived and written before the eruption of um, BLM protests earlier this year that have once again um, raised questions of racial oppression and justice in the Western world. So um, could you tell us a little bit about what prompted you to write the book? 
Um, I, of course, uh, like everyone, was really delighted to see um, uh, the upswell in protest. But of course, I had no idea that this was going to happen. What drove me primarily was um, a sense of, in terms of my own research um, uh, precedents and priorities, that I had actually spent a lot of time, in fact, all of my time, researching metropolitan French political and cultural history, and that French colonial history was something that I didn't know very much about. Um, I mean, I had, I was about to say, like like all of us, read C.L.R. James's Black Jacobin, so I knew about mm. the story of the um, uh, Haitian Revolution and yeah. and the story of its leader, but I hadn't really um, spent any any serious time in the archives um, on. Uh, French colonial history. And I suppose the other thing that has always interested me, two other things that have always interested me and which are reflected in the various books that I've written. One is what I would call the history of the revolutionary tradition in France, because France is is a country that since the late 18th century has this wonderfully rich, powerful and diverse uh, revolutionary tradition, which begins with um, the Jacobins and goes all the way through to the communists in the 20th century. So it's a very rich tradition. And secondly, I'm I'm interested in um, in how should I call them big, powerful, charismatic leaders. You know, I've written about uh, people like Napoleon, people like De Gaulle, um, pe- 19th century figures, uh, uh, revolutionary figures. So. Um, when you put all of that together, um, the thing that I hadn't done was to research colonial history and mm-hmm. colonial revolutionary history, and indeed colonial revolutionary history with a particular focus on charismatic leaders. And once you yeah. set out the equation like that, there, there was a, I mean, there are many, there's still many more possibilities, but, but, but the one that I landed on immediately was Toussaint Louverture because he ticks all these boxes. Yeah. Um, you mentioned so you mentioned in the start of the book that you're from Mauritius originally, um, and how surprised or taken aback you were by um, some of the um, kind of uh, immediate similarities that you saw between Haiti and Mauritius as former French colonies, despite being on um, you know opposite parts of the world, um, opposite ends of the world. Uh, so I was wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit about how uh, the legacy of the French Empire has shaped both places, and perhaps how you feel it might have uh, shaped your own background. Well, uh, it's a very interesting comparison because uh, when I grew up, um, the, the the history of slavery in Mauritius was something that you were not told very much about, um, and, and you and you weren't taught it very much in school either. Um, the the kind of narrative that was given, even though Mauritius has been independent since uh, 1968, mm. the narrative now that I think back. Uh, at the sort of things that I learned at school. It was really a kind of very positive narrative about you know, the big contributions that all the different colonial powers made to um, uh, you know, uh, turning our island into a, a great and wonderful place. And you know, when we studied the French period, which, which goes from um, the early 18th century up to the early 19th, you know, yeah. the, the French lose Mauritius in 1810. Um, all I remember from that is learning about French governors, you know, a whole mm-hmm. series of governors who, you know, built roads, etc. Slavery wasn't even mentioned. Mm-hmm. And so one of the one of the wonderful ironies is that it took, among other things, um, my becoming more interested in the history of Saint-Domingue for me to then realize that, that there is actually a huge amount of history of Mauritius that I didn't know about. And and it sort of took me back to that history too. Because of course, in the meantime, particularly over the past 20 years or so, uh, Mauritian scholars have been doing a lot of work um, uh, exhuming this history of of slave resistance. And and it is, and the parallels are there, right? So, um, and I think it's something that you can almost say as a general proposition, wherever there is slavery, there is resistance to slavery. Yeah. And the stories about those 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 resistors um, are stories that I I also rediscovered, or, or in some cases discovered for the first time, as I was doing the work on Saint Domingue. And the other extraordinary thing is um, the, the the history of uh, particular sites. You know, um, mm-hmm. th- there's some landmarks in Mauritius that once I started reading about the history of slavery, I realized that I had walked past them or driven past them 
you know, hundreds of times as, mm. a, as a kid. Um, but there are no memorials, there, there are no plaques. Um, and so I didn't know that this was a particularly a particular landmark in terms of um, uh, uh, the history of slavery in Mauritius. And, and it's only recently through the work of these colleagues that, that this has started to emerge. And of course, this is a universal story, right? Everywhere we're now you know, trying hard in this country, in France, in America, to um, to uncover um, these sites of memory and uh, uh, and reappropriate them. So um, it was a very um, it was a very felicitous uh, journey for me because it in a, in, a, in, a, in a funny sort of way it took me back to my to my Mauritian roots. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so I guess to, to to maybe to move on to some of the meat of the discussion. Um, in terms of the background or maybe setting the scene um, could you tell us a little bit about Sandemang's status back then in the region and also maybe in the context of you know the European colonial empires um, as they were at that time so in the late by the late 18th century Sandemang is commonly known in Europe as the pearl of the Antilles Um, it's the world's largest producer of um, sugar, uh, of coffee, and also vast quantities of cotton, cocoa, indigo. Um, it contributes a massive amount to the French to the French uh, exchequer, and um, uh, it is uh, a place where fabulous fortunes are made. Uh, they are mm-hmm. made uh, almost entirely by um, the thirty-five thousand European settlers who are there. Um, Alongside them, there are about 30,000 uh, mixed race people. Um, and uh, all of the hard work, all of the labor is, of course, done by the 500,000 slaves who, <clears throat> by the late 18th century, uh, um, have uh, <clears throat> become the majority population um, in the colony. And so Sandbank is this uh, remarkable place which uh, uh, attracts attention attracts uh, envy, of course, of other colonial powers. The the British are in the region and they are based in Jamaica. And particularly from the moment of the French Revolution, uh, the outbreak of the French Revolution, and particularly the outbreak of the the revolt, the insurrection of the enslaved uh, people of Saint-Domingue in 1791, the British start to... um, uh, uh, cast eyes on uh, uh, on, on Saint-Domingue and, and hope to, to establish control over it. And that's something that perhaps we'll come back to. Um, I should say, in terms of the geography, Saint-Domingue occupies the eastern third of the, the island of Hispaniola. Um, and the western third, um, which, it, which in today's terms is the Dominican Republic, is controlled by the Spaniards. And the Spaniards... Um, so the Spaniards are not very far, and uh, uh, when uh, the revolution breaks out in in Saint Domingue after 1791, they too um, try to uh, gain control uh, over the area. Um, and last but not least, you have the Americans who um, are becoming increasingly assertive um, in the 1790s, and particularly during the second half of the 1790s, they are very keen to establish commercial and political relationships with the colony. So that's the kind of broad situation Mm. that Toussaint Louverture is having to deal with. And in fact, you could almost summarize his his time in power and in office as one in which he has to navigate this very complicated journey um, and uh, uh, at times placate and at times fight back against these rival imperial forces. Mm. So I guess maybe just for our for our listeners, what what happened in in seventeen ninety one? Um, maybe to to summarize, you know what what are the what are the key events um, in this in this story? I guess. Yes, so to go very quickly, what happens in 1789 is that there's a, a revolution which, in France which proclaims uh, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And so everybody's very happy, um, and not everybody, but of course those who support the revolution thinks that these principles, um, because they claim to be universal, will apply everywhere um, in, in the French territories. 
Of course, the uh, 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 owners of enslaved people in the French colonies uh, think otherwise. And when the news of the French Revolution arrives in Saint-Domingue, the, the, the settlers um, immediately hijack the revolution. Um, they pick the parts of it that talk about um, freedom and, and, and uh, sovereignty, and, um, and they create deliberative assemblies, in fact. But those assemblies are very keen to affirm that slavery is going to continue, mm. um, and it does. So the yeah. French Revolution, um, uh, uh, and, and because the settlers are very powerful, they have um, strong, uh, uh, a, a strong lobby in, in Paris, which right. um, is highly influential in the French National Assembly. So by 1790, 1791, the French National Assembly has basically given a constitutional basis to slavery. Right? It recognizes that slavery, because slaves are, are deemed to be possessions, um, the French National Assembly guarantees the possessions of the colonists. So mm -hmm. by that sort of sleight of hand, the French Revolution is able to um, refuse to apply the principles of liberty, equality, and fraternity to um, the enslaved peoples in the colonies. And that's the point at which the enslaved of Saint-Domingue decide that they have to take matters into their own hands. And so in August 1791, in the northern plain of the colony, which is the richest and the, the most fertile part of the mm. colony, um, uh, slave uh, slave leaders and leaders of the enslaved uh, uh, populations um, launch an insurrection, which very quickly spreads across uh, the whole of the northern area, and that's how the Haitian Revolution starts. So you've given us, um, you already kind of gave us the uh, the kind of compressed biography of uh, Toussaint and his leadership, his establishment as um, governor for life and, um, and eventually his um, capture and exile to France. I was wondering if you could uh, tell us, I suppose, a bit about how your, um, how you feel that your research, uh, the new things that you've discovered in the archives and uh, in the multiple kind of visits you, you mentioned you've done in kind of different national collections and national archives, how is this, um, how is this altered or may alter our view of uh, Toussaint Louverture and his place in the Haitian Revolution. Um, thank you. That's a um, that's a really great question. Um, I I suppose I could I could put it in a number of different ways. One is um, what I really wanted to do in this book, um, uh, thanks to the kind of copious archives of Toussaint himself that are for the most part in in the French colonial archives, um, but also in in, in Spanish, American, and French archives. But, but, but the first thing I wanted to do was to kind of recapture his voice because he's left us this wonderful paper trail. Um, and so um, hearing him, mm. hearing him speak, hearing him give his speeches, uh, hearing him uh, through the letters and administrative reports that he writes, through his proclamations, that's something um, uh, which I think is very important um, because when you hear someone and, and hear his voice, you, you get a kind of really good insight into who he is and, and how he thinks. And that's yeah. one, of the, one of the big things that I hope I've achieved um, in this biography. Secondly, um, I've tried to also explain his system of power, which is a very complex one. Um, yeah. he's, he's not just someone who relies on, on brute force or, or even who relies primarily on the military. I mean, I have a chapter which looks at his system of government at a local level. And what you see is that Toussaint has a really quite a subtle, um, elaborate system in which he relies on different groups. Um, uh, and, and one of the very striking things about his, his, his system of rule is that he drew and was able to rely on the support of um, groups whose interests were often, you know, you, you, could, you could even say fundamentally antithetical. Yeah. Um, the big white planters loved him, um, but then so did um, the vast majority of African-born former slaves. Um, they idolized him too. And, and part of the reason he's able to do that is because he's a very clever, subtle, um, revolutionary leader, um, and he knows how to appeal to um, 
a sense of common purpose. Um, yeah. uh, and that's the great thing that he creates um, in Saint-Domingue. Um, so that's the sort of second thing that I think the book brings out, uh, the, the kind of distinct and uh, a very special quality of his revolutionary leadership. Um, and thirdly, uh, um, uh, I mean, thirdly, for the moment, at least, maybe there are other elements we can come back to. Thirdly, one of the things I, I really tried to draw out is the importance of his Caribbean and, and African um, heritages. Um, and, and this is where perhaps I, I part company slightly with the sort of dominant representations of Toussaint in um, uh, uh, in in Europe. Uh, in works like uh, uh, C.L.R. James's Black Jacobins um, or earlier works um, by French Republicans like Victor Chalcher, who wrote a biography of Toussaint. They basically see him as a disciple of the Enlightenment. And, and of yeah. course, he was that. But what I'm very keen to also stress is that um, his Caribbean um, identity matters hugely as well. This is someone who's a devout Catholic, who's someone whose ideas are shaped by the spirituality of the Taino people, the indigenous people of Saint-Domingue, whose ideas are shaped by resistance ideologies of um, runaway slaves, and whose ideas are shaped by the Vodou religion too. I mean, although he he wasn't Vodouisant himself, he knew everything about uh, that religion. And one of the things I try and do throughout the book is really to show how um, this helped him uh, uh, establish uh, and maintain close relations with with his followers. Um, so there's that side of him, and there's also the African side, which I think very few people have, have talked about. But Toussaint was someone who was very um, uh, uh, profoundly shaped by uh, uh, the Elada culture. He spoke the font language. Um, his father taught him uh, uh, the science of herbal medicine. Um, uh, a lot of the intuitions that he has about uh, the military art, um, I think he gets from uh, uh, the, that sort of military um, uh, uh, martial culture of uh, many of the African peoples who were um, uh, around him. So there's that um, the interaction of all these different cultures um, in Toussaint is something that I think is very important. And, and it continues all the way through the 1790s. And that I think is something, uh, an interpretation of him that uh, that I think is is, is novel. And I mean, it's complete, it's fascinating. And I have to say it is one of the, it is one of the elements that I was um, most fascinated by was particularly um, the, um, in the book, when you talk about the particular speech, you know, the speeches, um, the uh, particular kind of jokes that he brings up or his references to voodoo um, when he's um, uh, seeking to mobilize a particular group of people. And indeed, the letters that he writes and that you talk about in some detail, the letters that he writes to um, uh, the reports he provides back to France. Um, so it was like the voice, I think the voice does come across and it is it is kind of uh, exceptionally, exceptionally kind of um, makes it exceptionally interesting to to hear it. Um I suppose I wanted to I wanted to ask you a bit more about um, Catholicism and Enlightenment, but before then, I suppose could you maybe just explain a little further why does it what is it about uh, his background or his place that means that he's able to fuse all of these elements? Um, how is he an individual that is able to fuse all of these elements? The voodoo elements, the uh, ideology of the runaway slaves, the um, Enlightenment traditions, the, the Catholicism, um, the Alada tradition that you mentioned, what is it about him as a person that means that all of these, he can channel all of these various um, aspects of Haitian society so effectively? Well, I think part of that, part of the answer is just um, his experience. I mean, he spends the first 50 years of his life um, in on this plantation um, in, in, in the north of Saint-Domingue. And um, there is, um, in the north of Saint-Domingue, um, I mean, the way, the way I would present it is um, he comes into a political and, and uh, uh, civic culture, which is already deeply infused with um, these different revolutionary and, and cultural traditions. So one of the elements, for example, that I think very clearly shapes him 
is the tradition which is known as the tradition of Macandal. Um, Macandal is um, uh, 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 a leader of, of the enslaved uh, uh, populations of Saint-Domingue who emerges in the mid um, 18th century and, and who, who, who does practice Vodou um, and who um, believes that the future, the future of the colony is one in which um, the enslaved peoples need to take complete control um, of their destinies and basically kick out the white settlers. Um, now, this isn't an idea that Toussaint himself later adopts, but when you see the style that he um, he uses, the sort of rhetoric that he uses when he's talking to his own supporters, you see that he borrows elements um, of um, the sort of Macandal um, uh, spirituality um, and, and adapts them to uh, to his own uh, uh, political practice. In a sense, that's what Toussaint does all the time. Um, whatever he sees around him, whether it's from Europe, whether it's from Africa, whether it's from the Caribbean, he, he internalizes it and then picks out um, the elements from it that he thinks uh, can and, and will suit his purpose mm -hmm. and, and adapts them uh, accordingly. And he does the same with Catholicism. He does the same with French republicanism, you know, I, and that's where I think it is a mistake to see him as a, a, a just as a just as a disciple of French uh, metropolitan French republicanism, because on the one hand, you know, he he doesn't really see them as as his superiors because they try and lord it over him, and mm. uh, he's he's not someone who allows himself to be lorded over. But more fundamentally, and and this I think is the big conceptual innovation that he makes. Toussaint is someone who really takes the idea of fraternity very seriously. Um, and of course, fraternity has a very complicated life in France and it eventually uh, flames out um, uh, after the fall of Robespierre. But for Toussaint, the word frère is something very, very central and, and he gives it a, a very distinct local meaning. And that's very characteristic of the way in which he operates. So. Um, that I think is 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 what he's doing all the time. He's he's, he's drawing on these different um, intellectual, political, and cultural influences that he finds around him, and then uh, mobilizing them to his own political purposes. So one of the one of the kind of tensions that I was fascinated by was, um, and I thought you you drew it out very um, very effectively, is the. So, I mean, you know, I suppose every every school child who's um, done some history will know that um, the French Revolution is established with this with great kind of anti-clerical force and um, weight behind it. And so one of the things that's fascinating to read about um, in your book about Toussaint is how um, these elements of Catholic humanism, as well as radical enlightenment kind of uh, fuse, both in his mm. leadership and in the uh, in the kind of uh, enslaved and um, subsequently free population. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about the, the Catholic background to the revolt and to um, the successful uh, the successful mobilization of the slaves and also the place of radical enlightenment, as you called it, in the revolution. Um, yes, um, although I should preface this by saying that unlike um, um, a lot of what we know um, from the 1790s, um, the early his earlier history of Toussaint is one for which um, the archives are, are relatively silent. Um, I mean, we only have a handful of um, actual documents um, concerning the first 50 years of his life. We, we, we don't know exactly when he was born. We don't know exactly which year he was emancipated, although we, we can more or less guess that it was sometime in the mid 1770s. Um, we, it was only very recently that it was discovered that he'd been married twice, in fact, yeah. and had already had a, a family before he met um, a, 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 the person who became his, his companion uh, in the 1780s. So there are lots of things that we don't know about him, um, yeah. and even the records of the of the Breda plantation, um, which which have survived, are are silent about his real role. So um, what I'm about to say about his Catholicism and and his um, his embrace of Enlightenment values um, is a hypothesis more than, uh, and it's to to a certain extent something that I've read back 
from from what I know to be the case from the 1790s. And of course, yeah. there is there is an element of danger. One has to be honest in reading in reading things retrospectively. Yeah. However. It, it is clear that um, I mean we do know for a fact that Toussaint uh, that there were Jesuits um, around the uh, uh, the area where where Toussaint um, grew up, and he almost certainly was in contact with them. Uh, they probably recruited him, uh, and uh, uh, he became one of their, as it were. Um, uh, missionaries. Uh, and uh, of course, the Jesuits are then uh, kicked out of Saint-Domingue because they're thought to be too too close to the, to the enslaved peoples. Um, but by then, um, Toussaint has already acquired this, um, I suppose, if we wanted to put it in, in, in modern terminology, it would be, um, you know, a form of, um, uh, you know, liberation theology, as it were. It was, you know, it was based on this which something which for the time was an absolutely revolutionary idea, which is that, you know, all men and women are equal, right? Yeah. That is that, mm-hmm. that is part of of Christian teaching, yeah. uh, and of course um, the the French colonial uh, authorities and uh, and and the church hierarchy had to find a way around that, but for but for the radical element in the uh, colonial clergy, this was something that that was true and that had to be um, uh, uh, practiced. Yeah. So I think Toussaint absorbs all of that, and you see it. Uh, I mean, it's implicit in everything that he says. Um, the Enlightenment, I think, comes in. I mean, the question there is uh, the, the sort of prelim- preliminary question. There is when exactly did he learn to read? Uh, we don't have clear evidence of that either. Uh, uh, one fairly convincing theory is that the Jesuits taught him to read. Um, I think um, they may have taught him the kind of rudiments of of the alphabet, but he becomes much more fl- a fl- much more fluent reader. Only I would think um, sometime in the 1780s or early 1790s. Yeah. So there, there is a legend that you know, um, and and it was slightly kind of paternalistic um, French interpretation that Toussaint was this poor slave who was just sort of blighted, and then suddenly, um, sometime in the 1770s, he reads the Abbe Renal, who writes yeah. the Histoire Philosophique des Deux Indes, and um, his mind is. Uh, um, his mind is completely uh, opened, and yeah. he realizes the the, uh, the the terrible state of oppression that he's living in. And of course, Toussaint and and the enslaved peoples didn't need a European philosopher to tell them about the yeah. horrors of slavery. They they experienced it on a day to day basis. But Toussaint was very happy to go along with this story, and yeah. and and uh, and in fact, um, in the 1790s, he was very happy for. Various his various French allies to describe him as uh, uh, as a disciple of of Renal, um, yeah. but I think Renal. Um, the other reason that this is uh, not accurate is that uh, you know Renal isn't actually someone who's calling for a revolution. When you read the text, what Renal is actually saying, the text is written and addressed to French settlers, French colonialists. And, and Renal is actually telling them, if you don't reform uh, uh, slavery and, 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 and change your practices, there will be a revolution. Renal is not someone who's actually advocating it. In yeah. fact, he's trying to stop it, yeah. right? And, and that therein, I think, lies one of the huge differences between even the, the best intentioned um, supporters of uh, the enslaved uh, peoples in the colonies and the uh, and the enslaved themselves. Yeah. It's is it um, just remind me is it is it Renal who come who's um, the originator of the term the, of Black Spartacus, the man who will um, the man who will uh, avenge avenge his race. Yes, Renal talks about it, and then uh, the, the term is actually first used um, in 1796 in Saint Domingue by Governor Etienne Laveau um, after. Uh, Toussaint has come and basically saved him from uh, an attempted coup. So um, Toussaint is then promoted uh, to the post of deputy governor. And uh, Lavo gives this great speech in the cup where he celebrates Toussaint as the black Spartacus. 
So, um, so it was a term that was actually quite commonly used uh, to describe him uh, uh, in, in Saint-Domingue by his allies. One of the many, um, so I mean, among many of the kind of fascinating threads, the one thing that um, that gripped me um, in particular was the how the uh, I suppose the tension between the idealism and the realpolitik of um, of the revolution, and in particular the uh, how uh, Toussaint kind of um, sought to establish more of his uh, autonomy vis-a-vis France, but also how he had to navigate, as you've already said, the kind of the complexity of imperial rivalries in the Caribbean. And so one story that I was um, just, um, you know, it was just, I thought it was fascinating and I'd, li- I'd love for you to uh, tell us about it a bit more, is um, when he deliberately sabotages a French uh, expedition, which is supposed to launch from uh, from Saint-Domingue to liberate Haiti, to take Haiti away from the British and to liberate, sorry, to liberate Jamaica and to take Jamaica away from the British, to liberate the slaves of Jamaica. And it's set out by the directory that was the French Republican government of the day. And to say... Um, sabotages it uh, in his own with his own kind of rationale i was wondered if you could talk us through this a bit because i think it's a fascinating story of this um of uh, navigating the kind of uh, realpolitik and the idealism of the revolution yes um it is a very interesting story and i think it, it opens up some some fascinating uh, angles uh, that illuminate Toussaint's uh, uh, way of thinking. Um, basically, the French Directory tried to um, export, if you like, uh, the revolution um, uh, in in the Caribbean, and so uh, they think that uh, the British position is relatively weak. So they plan um, uh, uh, this insurrection in uh, uh, in uh, in Jamaica, and um, which is only which is not very far away from, from Saint-Domingue. So they train um, uh, <clears throat> some, some soldiers. Uh, they send um, uh, uh, a number of people to scout out the area. Um, and these are people whom Toussaint himself meets. And he goes along with, with the plan. But secretly, he's very um, suspicious of it. He's suspicious of it for a number of reasons. Firstly, he thinks that actually there are some people in the directory in Paris who would not be unhappy to see um, the uh, former slaves of Saint-Domingue fighting um, a war that they end up losing. Um, There are people who are already starting to to get worried about the the power of uh, the Black Revolution in Saint-Domingue. So rather like um, um, the directory sent um, Napoleon Bonaparte to Egypt in the hope that he might never return. There are some people in, in Paris who think the same thing about Toussaint and Jamaica. You know, let him, let him and his soldiers go out there um, and, uh, uh, and, and get a bloody nose, as it were. So he's suspicious for that one reason. I think the other reason he's suspicious of this expedition um, is a more fundamental one. And I think he's right is that um, winning, winning control of the territory would only be the first stage um, uh, in, in, uh, uh, in the battle, and that the British would continue to hold um, the tactical advantage um, because they controlled, uh, they controlled the sea. And uh, the other thing to remember in the late 1790s is that Britain is allied to the United States. So um, uh, Toussaint was genuinely concerned that um, uh, uh, if there was a Republican administration um, that took power in, in, uh, in Jamaica, that um, uh, it would be isolated very quickly and, uh, and would end up um, uh, being choked off by the other imperial forces. Uh, and I think the, the most fundamental reason why he's, he's skeptical of this endeavor is because he wants to protect his own revolution. Uh, he doesn't want to jeopardize it. Of course, this is an age-old debate in all revolutions. You know, uh, revolutions, when they yeah, start off, they have um, at least some element of a desire to spread themselves out. Uh, and Toussaint shares this, mm. by the way. You see, you see from his cor- correspondence, including 
his correspondence where he, he he talks about Jamaica, where you know I quote one letter where he says to a, a Republican um, comrade of his, you know, I, I sincerely believe, sincerely hope that the Jamaican that my Jamaican brothers will be able to to overthrow the oppression that um, that they find themselves under. But that's the other point also that I think Toussaint doesn't believe, unlike some revolutionaries, that you can export revolutions. Revolutions can only succeed if their if their if their fundamental uh, uh, energy and, uh, and and impetus comes from within. Mm-hmm. And and so for all of those reasons, he decides that he can't really allow the the Jamaican uh, expedition to work. So he sabotages it, um, mm-hmm. uh, and that. One has to then uh, also uh, uh, acknowledge, you know, he does it also for good, sound tactical reasons because he hopes that um, uh, uh, he'll be able to um, endear himself to the the British authorities in Jamaica, mm. and that works only very briefly because the Brits are grateful to him for about um, ten seconds, and then <laughs> they revert to their traditional attitude of uh, racist hostility. Mm. The, yeah, I think this this point on exporting revolution is is a really fascinating one, and maybe kind of leads you to think about some of the comparisons of the Haitian Revolution with with other with other revolutions. Um, and I guess one thing that strikes me is what I mean, you you might call them the sort of the Cromwellian elements of Toussaint's rule, which is to say how far I guess the republican and democratic character of the revolution were also embedded and institutionalized in 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 the military in in military institutions i mean do you think there's any anything to the comparison um english and haitian revolution or indeed other i mean or indeed other um, revolutionary national histories yeah yes um i mean he he was i mean in fact you know um i think when you look at um uh Revolutionary activity in the in the High Enlightenment and and the early nineteenth century, um, uh, the sort of military component is is very often decisive. Um, yeah. So um, th- that is part of what I think is happening when we're talking about um, revolutionary transformation in these societies. Um, the, the military becomes one of the kind of primary agents of democratic change. Um, for complicated reasons that are to do with the democratization of of the military itself, right? Um, so, so yeah. that's a more gen that's a more general story. Uh, I mean, yeah. you see it, you, you see it in France, you see it uh, you see it in the United States, of course, um, and uh, and eventually you'll see it in um, in South America with Bolivar. So, yeah. Toussaint is not um, you know not not kind of not not too dissimilar in that respect, but I think one of the things that I've tried to do in uh, particularly in the, in that chapter of mine where I look at his local power mm-hmm. is to stress that actually um, I think it would be a mistake to to see his rule as relying uh, I'd say even even relying primarily on military force. Um, I mean the army was was what was the <clears throat> it was a central political institutions. But Toussaint is someone who um, I think relies on lots of different groups. You know, he had a lot of advisors who played crucial roles in shaping right. his policies. You know, when I have, a ch- I have a whole chapter on his constitution, for example, and that's something that is crafted entirely through discussions and conversations with um, um, uh, uh, groups of uh, 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 local people that he's uh, that he's appointed to mm. to act as constitution drafters. He also interacts constantly with democratic institutions like the National Guard, civic associations, um, and municipalities. Um, and the other thing that I found absolutely fascinating. Um, and, and this this is something that emerges when you comb through his correspondence, is that he's someone who's always on the move, right? Yeah. He's constantly, every day, he's meeting people in towns and villages and estates. He's receiving petitioners, 
patiently listening to their claims. And that's why all the records, even from people who are not necessarily supporters of his, show that you know he retains this overwhelming popular support in Sadamang um, right until the, the very end. So, so the sort of military model of leadership, uh, I think, um, doesn't really tell us a huge amount about, I mean, I think it explains how he emerges and how he consolidates his power. But I think those crucial four or five years towards the end of his rule, something really different. And, and I, I, I'd almost be tempted to say something unique is happening with him. Right. He's creating a, a really different uh, 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 and unique system of power which unfortunately then doesn't really go on to be replicated because of the um, you know, particular trajectory that the Haitian revolution takes after 1804. Um, but, but it's really a very original synthesis, like, like with most things with, with Toussaint. Just another element of um, kind of uh, comparative revolutionary histories, I suppose, that struck me, um, and I just wanted to quickly cover, but it was the uh, descent also into the kind of the, once the uh, kind of external foes have been seen off, or at least initially, the descent into fratricidal violence um, with the so-called War of Knives, when Toussaint has to subdue the secessionist south of the island that has been stoked up by the British as well. Um, and as and it, then it becomes in turn tinged of, with elements of a race war um, in the south. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about that. Yes, um, it's, it's a very complex war because it has these racial elements, but it also has um, political elements. I mean, uh, a lot of the people who join uh, Toussaint's um, uh, uh, adversary, who's a man called André Rigaud, um, who, who was a Republican general, uh, and they fought uh, on the same side uh, uh, in the early years of, of, the, of the revolution in 74, 75, 76. Um, but what happens is that um, uh, Rigaud is someone who is a mixed race uh, and uh, he, he controls the southern territories uh, in, in Saint-Domingue, where, where mixed-race populations uh, are, are quite well represented. And um, uh, mixed-race leaders like Rigaud, not, not all of them, because some of them actually remain loyal to Toussaint, but mixed, some mixed-race leaders begin to fear um, uh, what they see as the undue influence that Black leaders like Toussaint are starting to, to exert. So... That's the kind of root of the of the conflict, and and, and it breaks out in the in seventeen um, in seventeen ninety nine, um, and there's a one year um, fairly brutal war which ends with uh, Rigaud being defeated and uh, sent in, and, and he goes into exile. Um, I think the way to see this civil war, and I think civil wars in general, post or civil conflicts, um, post revolution after the success of revolutions, is to bear in mind that there is always an element of um, external intervention as well. I mean, Rigo is supported by the Spaniards at various moments. He's supported by the British, um, who yeah. actually arm him. Um, uh, and, and, you know, we have, we have actually documentary evidence um, from the head of the British Navy in, in Jamaica, who actually you know, explains, and, and it makes good, uh, good kind of real politics sense that as long as Rigaud and Toussaint are fighting each other, they won't be um, bothering to spread the revolution um, to Jamaica. So, yeah. so I would say a large part of what is happening in this war of knives is um, externally, uh, uh, externally uh, prompted. And of course, if you think comparatively, um, this happens with lots of revolutions. Yeah. You know, the war with the royalists is 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 a war which is uh, fomented by the royalists in France refusing to accept the revolution and basically betraying the revolution. Um, yeah. um, and uh, and that's why the king is is eventually captured and executed. Right? He yeah. he, he literally is a traitor. Um, uh, and you look at the Russian Revolution, you know, why does the civil war break out after 1917? I mean, there are, of course, uh, in, there is internal opposition, but the, the internal opposition is then um, buffeted by an external intervention. Yeah. 
Um, when Fidel wins in, 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 in Cuba, you know, the Americans then try try to get rid of him and, and, they, and they don't stop. So, you know, I think what you see in, in, in Haiti uh, in, that, in that moment of, uh, of, 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 of so-called fratricidal war is, is something that is complicated because it does undoubtedly have some uh, endogenous origins, um, which are rooted in the conflict between uh, the mixed race people and uh, and the black leadership. And I should add one thing, which is that in the early years of the revolution, the mixed race leaders wanted to side with the white settlers against the blacks. So yeah. the, there's, there's a bit of bad blood there. Um, um, I would say the overriding reason why you have this conflict is because um, the imperial powers, the imperialist powers, um, want to weaken um, the black revolution. So um, one thing I wanted to um, uh, kind of pick your brains about is this uh, one of the kind of abiding controversies, I suppose, um, uh, in left historiography of the Haitian Revolution is how far um, uh, Toussaint kind of compromised with the white planters. And you mentioned earlier how part of his political success was the ability to mediate between all these different groups, not only the um, slaves um, who had come from, who were there from Africa, but also the white planters. And I was fascinated by this in particular because it seemed to me his attempt to kind of maintain relations with the white planters and also the... Um, the kind, of, the kind of white colonial elite was testimony to his far-sightedness um, and also his pragmatism in uh, the reliance on their, you know, technical and administrative capacity in overseeing the um, agricultural and export economy of the island. Um, so I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about that and the controversies associated with his um, his relationship with the white planters. Yes, um, and in fact, part. I mean. As in all revolutionary movements, there are there are there are different views about the the way the revolution should go. And and by the late 1790s, you have a strand within um, the Black Revolution in Saint Domingue, which thinks that um, that uh, you know the time has come to take control of um, the means of production, as it were. Uh, I mean, more recently, you've had exactly the same debate in South Africa, post-apartheid, kind of what do you do, right? Once uh, once, once the majority uh, uh, takes power, what kind of attitude do you have towards um, the former, your former torturers, as it were? And, um, and Toussaint's view was that um, it was, I mean, it was a mixture of pragmatism and principle. I mean, I think principle is that I think he is, he is genuinely someone who believes in, in fraternity. And fraternity always means two things for him. It means the unity of the Black people, but it also means building a political community in which everyone, you know, whether they're white, mixed race, or Black, can, in, can live under civic equality. And, yeah. and, and, and it is a real yeah. genuine part of his vision. Um, but of course, he's, he's, he's a pragmatist too, and he, and he realizes that um, in the context of the late 18th century, um, independence, um, I mean, sorry, uh, uh, the idea of simply expropriating um, the big planters and taking control of the means of production would in the short run, at least, um, wreck the economy. And, and Toussaint realized that it was not, um, you know, that would mean wrecking the revolution. Yeah. Um, so he was very clear for that reason that uh, you know that the, the Saint-Domingue economy needed to needed to be rebuilt and, and needed to continue to grow, and for that reason he needed um, <clears throat> the planters and the industrialists to to to, to stay there or, or to come back. Um, uh, but but he has a, a wider vision as well, which is a vision which is rooted in the idea of autonomy, right? So what he that's why he doesn't want independence, um, unlike. Um, uh, people like Desalines, yeah. who eventually uh, leads the war of independence and uh, and uh, and is there at the end um, yeah. to uh, 
to carry the, the, the message through. But Toussaint thought that independence in that context would be a mistake because it would immediately unite um, all the imperial powers against, um, against the newly independent state. Yeah. And, um, you know, it would, it would make it extremely hard for such a state to become, um, to remain viable. And sadly, mm. when you look at the post, post-independence history of Haiti, it seems to me that Toussaint's um, anticipation was, 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 was right, yeah. you know, was correct. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, avoiding sort of, you know, summing up the man and his context, but do you think, you know, given... Toussaint's astonishing energy, you know, political, military skill, administrative capacity, physical toughness, uh, diplomatic acumen. Um, do you think it maybe reflects a wider weakness of, of the revolution that so much ended up being concentrated in and dependent on the efforts of, of, of one person? Um, to a certain extent, I think, um, I think, uh, you know, uh, I mean, I go back to to, to the to, to these early examples I gave. Um, it, it does seem to be a characteristic of many successful revolutions of the period that they end up being um, uh, embodied in 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 mm. a few uh, significant figures. So I don't think mm. this is something that is specific to to Saint-Domingue. You know, in in Corsica you have Paoli, uh, in Poland you have Kosciuszko. You know, the, um, one of the things that Republicans and Democrats are trying to do everywhere in this time is to, is to hold together these two, contra you know, apparently contradictory ideas, which is that the people are sovereign on the one hand. But, you know, this is where I think reading Rousseau is very important. Rousseau also talks mm. about the lawgiver, right? The lawgiver yeah. is a really important figure in Rousseau's political theory. And, you know, if you read it superficially, it just seems like, you know, it's like some kind of uh, uh, pre-Marxist version of dictate, the dictatorship of the proletariat. But, yeah. but it's actually a much more subtle vision, which, which in many respects, someone like Toussaint seems to me to, to embody, because what, yeah. he's, what he's trying to do is to hold the sovereignty uh, of the collective until such time as um, it can be fully exercised. Mm. And um, and if you think about it like that, um, he is um, he is trying to uh, do something um, which is which is very largely uh, uh, reflect a reflection also of the particular circumstances that he finds himself in, and and I think the debate about Toussaint's authoritarianism yeah. should not be a, a debate that one has in isolation. Um, one should also always remember um, what he was up against. Um, he was up against uh, 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 an Atlantic world where um, people simply did not believe that black people um, uh, had a legitimate right to uh, exercise power in the way that he did. Um, and there was a lot of fear and, and racism. And, uh, and, and none of the elites in any of the countries that he was dealing with, right, whether it was um, Britain, the United States, or even France, um, wanted to work with him in a in a uh, in, in an open and, and sincere way um, yeah. in fact the tragedy of, of 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 the Haitian revolution and of Toussaint is that they are becoming you know the the the, the Haitians those who are about to become Haitians are becoming more confident more uh, self-assertive more uh, 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 imbued with their ideas of uh, liberty, equality, and fraternity, precisely at the moment when the French revolutionaries are moving in the opposite direction. Right? Yeah. From the mid-1790s onwards, the revolution is becoming more and more conservative, and that's how you end up with Bonaparte and the restoration of slavery. So yeah. these are two, two trajectories that are not uh, parallel. They're, they're actually heading in, yeah. in opposite directions. Yeah. And one has to always remember that um, when thinking about Toussaint. You know, he's he's basically in a situation um, uh, of a war leader, right? It seems to me that's the way one should think about him. He's, he's fighting on all fronts, um, uh, and and you know, um, it, it, it's had he been operating uh, in in circumstances where um, all the major imperial powers were 
were dealing with him sincerely, then I think one can judge him by, by different standards. But given that he knew that the British were still out to get him, and given that he knew that the French at some point or another were almost certainly going to come and try and reconquer and re-enslave his people, um, yeah. I think, you know, it, it, once you understand that, his leadership um, has to be seen in a slightly different way. Mm-hmm. So I suppose one one final question to um, to wrap us up and not not an easy question but i i think the appropriate one to end on is how far would you say that the haitian revolution anticipates third world revolutions of the 20th century um it's a comparison you invoke in the book and i suppose i wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about it um and i both not only in terms of um not only in terms of the achievements of Haitian of the haitian 18th century early 19th century revolution and the third world revolution of the 20th century but also in terms of their limits and failures and linked to that i wondered if um if you had any thoughts about how far haiti's problems today could be rooted in the failures and deadlocks of the haitian revolution the limits that it was unable to overcome yes well i mean starting with that i think that's uh, it seems to me a fairly uh, unfortunately straightforward story because once the haitians get their independence um the French and and indeed one should say the, the imperial powers of the time become determined to make them pay for having won their freedom. So in the mid 1820s, the French uh, forced the then Haitian government to uh, reimburse the, the the planters for the slaves that they have lost, and that um, is a burden that the Haitian exchequer has to carry um, for the next um, 120 years. You know. The Haitian debt isn't fully paid off until the mid twentieth um, century. Yeah. So, um, and that, of course, completely skews um, the sort of choices they can make in terms of public policy. It forces them into a kind of downward spiral, uh, which you often see with highly indebted countries, and a lot of the political instability of Haiti can be explained uh, 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 by that factor alone. And of course. Added to that is the um, American intervention. The America under the so-called liberal internationalist uh, presidency of Woodrow Wilson yeah. com- comes in um, in uh, uh, in the early twentieth century and and occupies and reintroduces segregation right uh, in a country uh, which had which had uh, which had abolished it. So so there is. Um, I mean, th- there'd be more to say, but I think that's the kind of decisive factor in terms yeah. of explaining um, why uh, what has happened to Haiti. Um, in terms of the success, I think there is actually a much more positive story to tell. Um, I was rereading uh, Aimé Césaire's book uh, about the Haitian Revolution recently, and he says, and this is where he's he's taking issue um, actually quite fundamentally with C.L.R. James, who, who saw the Haitian revolutionaries as black Jacobins, i.e. Caribbean Frenchmen. Uh, Césaire sees um, uh, the Haitian revolution as um, a new type of revolution, which he calls a colonial revolution. And, and that is its singularity. It's the first major colonial revolution of the modern era. Um, and it's paradoxical to put it that way, because of course Toussaint didn't want um, uh, full sovereignty. But I think um, if you look at Toussaint's horizon, that's where he's heading, right? He's, right? he's heading in a direction in which the people of Saint-Domingue have full control over their uh, 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 economic resources. Um, and, 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 and the reason why he thinks France should remain the colonial power is principally to do with, with, with tactics uh, rather than um, fundamental principle. But when you look at the way in which um, the revolution in in Haiti emphasizes racial equality, I think um, there's a whole uh, 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 series of traditions that this revolution then um, empowers. And I talk about this in the later chapters of the book. You see that Toussaint and the Haitian revolution remain um, uh, powerful sources of ideological inspiration. 
um, for um, slaves who are fighting, enslaved peoples who are fighting for their emancipation in the 19th century, and, and especially in America, of course, but, but, but right across the Atlantic. And then in the 20th century, um, anti-imperial struggles um, uh, in, uh, in Africa and, and even in Asia, um, you know, the, the figure of Toussaint Louverture um, uh, uh, reappears. So this is a this is a positive revolutionary tradition. Um, it's a it's a revolutionary tradition of the global south, um, if I can put it that way. Um, and it's not a coincidence that you know one of one of the people I quote um, uh, at the beginning of this chapter, where I describe this tradition, is Fidel Castro. You know when yeah. when he's fighting in the 1950s to get rid of Batista and uh, and this wretched dictatorship that they're living under. He, and he's locked up in uh, in prison after uh, his early failure um, to to storm the Moncada. What 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 he says is that you know one of the great inspirations for him um, um, is is Toussaint Louverture and and the Haitian revolutionaries. So mm-hmm. so that's where mm-hmm. I would I would situate Toussaint in that longer tradition. Yeah. Well, I think that's a fantastic. Um, that's actually a fantastic note to end on. Thank you very much, Sudhir, for coming on. It's been um, it's been wonderful, wonderful to hear more about the book and to hear some of the detail of the book. And um, we would uh, strongly encourage all of our listeners to um, to get hold of it if they can. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Yeah!